I know it already works. We're going to read the third chapter, uh, third letter of John in just a moment. And I want to comment that uh, it's short and then we can sit back down. Would you like to join me as we stay? Third John begins with a salutation. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And then a new section, Gaius commended for his hospitality. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health just as it is well with your soul. I was overjoyed when some of the friends arrived and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, namely how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the friends, even though they are strangers to you. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God, for they began their journey for the sake of Christ, accepting no support from non-believers. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may become co-workers with the truth. And now a section called Diotrephes and Demetrius. Verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing in spreading false charges against us. And not content with those charges, he refuses to welcome the friends and even prints those, excuse me, prevents those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Everyone has testified favorably about Demetrius, and so has the truth itself. We also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. Final greetings. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. Instead, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk together face to face. Thank you. Diotrephes, that's a, that's a good one. You might want to, that's a freebie today. You might want to consider that. Well, as we, uh, today, we turn to the conclusion of our look at the Johannine epistles or the letters to John, or from John, excuse me. I feel like I'm going to sneeze, so I might mute this. I'm going to see what happens inside here. Okay, I think I'm all right. The first two letters, you know, and mainly 1 John is the bulk of the teaching. Uh, 2 John was quite short and we kind of just skipped over it for last week. I'm hearing this buzzing noise. I don't know if anybody else is hearing it. I don't know if it's me. Let me turn this off real quick.
Well, it's, I don't know if it's this one or not. Yeah. We will see. I've had it happen where like a, a football game starts coming in. You start hearing that over the, yeah, then, then you might as well just go home, right? Um, we'll see if we can figure it out. We've got excellent folks in the back there who work on that. So uh, we kind of skipped over Second John, uh, kind of repetitive, dealing with some of the same, same material. Uh, and today we're going to look at Third John. Third John is a little different than the first two. Uh, because the first two, if you recall, they're written sort of generically. Um, Paul's letters are written, you know, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Corinth, uh, to the Christians in Rome, something like that. Uh, John's letters are written more generically. Clearly, they have a situation in mind. They have a context. But they're written sort of ecumenically with the understanding that many people will probably read this and benefit from this. Now, Second um, John was written to... Um, to the um, to a lady, it was to the elect lady and her children, and we talked about that probably being the church community. Uh, and here in Third John, though, he he writes it or directs it towards Gaius. Uh, Gaius is a super common uh, Latin Roman name, one of the most popular names for a man uh, in that setting. Now, it could could be that he's writing to a man named Gaius. Um, however. Uh, Gaius means uh, rejoice or I rejoice. And he goes on to, uh, to clearly talk about um, the community and, and his, the children and how he, it makes him so excited to see his children um, uh, enjoy and doing well. Uh, it, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So while it could be written to a guy named Gaius, it could also be written to the community who is finding joy in the Lord, uh, most likely the Gentile, probably Roman community that he had been writing to. Remember, there were these uh, Judaizing influences trying to tell them they needed to become Jewish first or primarily, and he keeps writing to them that that's not, that's not necessary. So it could be that this is written just to this beloved community of, of children, of friends, of co-workers, as we'll see, who are finding joy in the Lord, uh, who he thinks of as his children. Either way, uh, I tend to think that that's uh, what, what he means here, um, and that he, by he, he's not really like identifying any person or direct community, which also kind of keeps them safe as well. But it could be either, either one. Uh, he is writing definitely to uh, a person of faith, to a community of faith, um, and he's talking about his children. Um, and I know, as I'm, I'm about halfway through my life, I think, I'm 42, I know you don't think that, um, and uh, probably about halfway through my ministry and career, and so I'm beginning to now be at the point where I can look back and I can see uh, teenagers especially, but adults as well, who, who I've been able to influence or God has used me in some way in their life, and especially some of those teenagers, it's one of those just, this you know, this feeling, maybe somebody you've taught or a, a, a child or a, somebody that you've been able to influence and you see them making decisions and moving into adulthood and getting married and you know having a career and all those kinds of things and and you, you 
that, that's one of the most joyful things, I think, about life and ministry is seeing how the Lord can use you to positively impact uh, those of a younger generation. Um, and I think this is what he's getting at here. He could be talking about his literal bi- you know, biological children, but I think that given the context, he's referring to his children in faith, right? To those who he has, he has taught, he's, he's led, uh, he's inspired. And who now are, are living joyful lives of their own and who will we'll see are, are, are helping and supporting others and they're doing the, the Lord's work themselves. What a, what an amazing, uh, feeling that is when you see even, even if there was one person that you were able to impact in your life, uh, in, in a really positive way and when you can see that, um, in a healthy way, the pride that you feel, uh, is, and I, I assume you, you know that feeling. It's just a good, good feeling. Um, as I thought about that, I think that um, going the direction he's going here, in many ways, I am the spiritual child of many people. I can think of many pastors, uh, many teachers, or just adults of influence who I would say, you know, humbly that I'm, I'm one of their spiritual children, right? And again, I'm just old enough that I, I also have some some spiritual children myself. And in a weird way, age doesn't work into that because sometimes those people are older than you. And sometimes they're younger. Who knows? Uh, we are both the spiritual children of others. And we have spiritual children ourselves. It's similar to the uh, expression that's often used these days, like disciple making. Right? You're being discipled. Or who's discipling you and who are you discipling? It's the same sort of thing. I thought today you might want to just take a moment. I love this kind of an exercise. Um, too many of us here to shout it out. So maybe on your paper, on your phone, or just in your brain. Who, who are you the spiritual child of? Maybe write down or think of a name or two or ten if you have had a lot of wonderful influences. Some of those people might be here in the congregation. Maybe they've passed on. Maybe they're from somewhere else. Who are you the spiritual child of? Just spend a minute thinking about that. Writing it down or whatever you'd like to do. Now, similarly, who are your spiritual children? Now, this one comes with a bit of a check with it, because often, I mean, we all have to have spiritual parents or else it's surprising that you would be here. Even if you walked in off the streets with nobody ever influencing you, most likely you, you wouldn't keep coming back here or anywhere unless at some point you connect with somebody who becomes kind of a spiritual parent. But a spiritual child means that you have or are doing the work of discipleship, of sharing your life. It could mean by teaching. It could also just mean by, um, here, come alongside. We're going we're gonna to do this thing for the potluck and I'll show you what we do. Or let me help you with that craft that you're doing. Or I heard your battery needs replacing. I know how to do that. Can I help you out? Right? It could be all kinds of different things that lead towards being a spiritual parent. But it takes intentionality. Who, who, who is it? Who, who, what are the names? Uh, who are your spiritual children? Same thing. Write those down or, or think about that for a moment. If you don't come up with any names, it's not too late. 
And if you come up with lots of names, it's still not too late. That's our job. We are the disciples of others. We imitate others. We, we, we learn faith from others. We become their children. And, and, you know, you can have lots of parents and it's okay. Nobody needs to be jealous about that. And, and then in turn, we take that and we give it to others. We, we share our lives. We give our lives. We teach. Whatever. Uh, and they become our spiritual children as well. That's actually how it's supposed to work. Um, and so if that's something you feel a bit like, well, I don't have somebody. Or, um, well, then how can, if I can help you in any way, um, if somebody else can help you to begin to mentor and connect with others, there's always somebody. God will place people in your lives who you can be a spiritual parent to. You can be a, a disciple maker to them. Like others have and do disciple you, you can disciple others. Okay, so, so John begins this way. He's rejoicing uh, in, in particular in Gaius and this community and his children who are, who are living well. They're walking in the truth. And then he transitions into uh, talking about the, the friends. And I don't think he's talking about the brethren uh, or the, the, the friends community, but maybe, maybe eventually. It's, but... Um, uh, so he's, he's begun, he starts with children, he moves to friends. Friends in this, uh, you'll see then he goes on to talk about co-workers, kind of a bit of a progression. As I thought about this, as I reflected on this over the last couple of weeks, it seems to, to, to me that what he's saying is we, we begin as children, we progress in faith and discipleship to the role of friends, and then eventually to, to co-workers, co-laborers with him and with, and with others, right? Uh, we start as young and immature in faith. And friends means we now kind of have a mature faith and we're, we're in this together, eventually to the point of, of being co-workers and working along uh, for the gospel together. And he praises uh, this community, unlike Diotrophes, um, who doesn't want to support the friends. But uh, he praises them for supporting the friends. Uh, they've come. We don't know who they are. They've come to to this community, and he says you, you supported them. And I think we can assume that that included finances, and probably. Um, uh, should we turn the audio off? Is it bothering anybody else? Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. All right, I've got a couple silent uh, suggestions. I'm just going to keep going, as uh, I don't think we can control it. Okay, um, so. Uh, he's, he's praising them because they've supported them. You know, this is the exact same thing that we had just talked about here with the Christmas pastor. It's the same thing that we do when we have missionaries come in. As a former, you know, professional missionary myself, uh, living and working in Africa, it was the kind of thing where I knew that in order just to live life and do anything, I had co-workers who had been helping me, who would support us. It was always amazing, the random person who would give, you know... Uh, $2 or $2,000 and, and, and allow you to do ministry and life and, and work. And what he says is these friends, who probably were children, who've now moved to the point of friends, they need support to do the work that God has them to do, right? Um, and you supported them. I think he's speaking that to Longmont, Church of the Nazarene as well, a church that very clearly has a long-standing tradition of supporting missionaries, both locally uh, and, and abroad, uh, that you continue to do so. And he rejoices in that. He rejoices in you. He says, well done. Good job. We are to do that. And he says, when you do that, 
Now, sometimes I've, I've had so many people tell me this. And I'll never forget the very first time I ever had a missions-like experience. I was 18 years old. I'd never traveled anywhere. Grew up in Clovis, New Mexico. So all I'd ever really seen were just, just flat farmland and cows uh, and occasionally going to the mountains. I'd never I'd been on a plane one time. And then I had the opportunity to go to Moscow on, on a two-week trip. And I had no money. And I was getting ready for college. So I certainly didn't, you know, needed the money for that. And somebody who I still have no idea who it was just paid for the entire thing in one go for me so that I could go. And, and I, the message I was given through the pastor was, I'm far too old, I can't do something like this, but you can. And if you're willing to do it, I'll pay for you. So whatever I did, and really that was a seed for the rest of my life, uh, that person, whoever he or she is, or they, are my co-workers. They enabled me to do, and as I went and did and served and all of that, they were really there with me. Right? Uh, many of you are in the same place. Maybe you used to be able to go and do, I've heard stories, some of you, you know, going off and all kinds of explorations and missions work and things. Or, or maybe for whatever reason you couldn't do that health-wise or job-wise, but you give to others to do that. You're, you're becoming your co-workers. And it seems, oh, it's easy to give money. Eh, it's not easy to give money. You know, my, times are tight. Times, there's always... There's always somebody who needs our money. There's always something broken. There's always something wrong, right? Uh, it's difficult to give financially, and that is a, a very sacrificial thing that we can do. So sometimes you, you may never be quite in that position where you can take off and go, but you can help others do so. Or maybe you find yourself at a place in life where no longer can you do that. Um, but through a little gift or a medium gift or a big gift or whatever, you enable others to do that. What John is saying is that when you do that, you're co-workers. It's kind of like you're on that flight too. It's kind of like you're in Poland working at the train station, as we've heard recently, or something like that. You're a co-worker. You're part of, of the work that God is doing. This all leads him to, uh, to the, the, the climax in this letter. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what's evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does not, I'm going to say, whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil is not, has not seen God. And remember, we've seen God, and to see God in Jesus is to be transformed. And so to see God is to be, you know, is to be transformed, and therefore we will be good. We start as children, we move to friends, we become co-workers, we imitate, and in all of this, we imitate the good, we imitate God. You know, really, imitation is how we learn things, if you think about it. Uh, from as, as early as we have any kind of recorded understanding of how humans have functioned, imitation or apprenticeship is how people learn. You, you learn a particular craft or skill. It's very hard to say, you know, if you'll just do this with stone, you'll make a house. Or, if you just do this with your crops, uh, this is how you're going to get them from seed to, you know, to market. Uh, if you just do this with a needle and thread, you'll have a, dra- a, a, a drown, a, a dressing gown, or a gown, or a t-shirt, or something. It's very hard to do that. Any sort of, of skill, or craft, or trade, the kind of things that we, you know, we need all the time, that are, uh, we depend on, They require teaching. Let me, here, let me show you how to do this. First, I show you. 
Then I give it to you for you to imitate and struggle through and I give you some help, some critique. Then you do it on your own. Now you become your own master and then you take on a new apprentice. This is how the world has always functioned. But in, in many ways, uh, you know, the modern world, the modern education tries to, to, to push against that sometimes. Uh, some places, some, some people value like, like rote memorization or that sort of thing. But, but this model, apprenticeship, it always wins out. Because we, we have to be taught how to do things. You know, my dad was, a, was a, 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 a contractor. He was a builder. He loved to do like cabinets and trim work and these things. And I wish I would have paid more attention when he was alive uh, so that I would know how to do more of that work. Um, we learn skills from people, sometimes from our father, from our mother, from a boss, somebody who we work for. Apprenticeship is how we learn. There's only so much you can be told or you can memorize before you, you know, uh, before you have to actually do it and learn how to do it. Um, memorization and just sort of learning, uh, you know, mem- how things function is never quite as valuable as learning sort of how to make, how to come to certain conclusions or or how to understand an argument, or how to solve an equation. If you learn those principles, which you can really only learn by people demonstrating for you, then you can function creatively in the world yourself. The same thing, I think, applies for life itself. Uh, The ancients, the ancient Greeks especially, they, they talked about this a lot, about the good life, about how to live the good life. And this is John's language. He says, imitate the good. They believed, the ancient Greeks and many civilizations, believed that that life was all about attaining to the good or to goodness. But that goodness wasn't something I could just sort of point you towards. I couldn't hand you a pamphlet and then say like, you know, go off and be good. That it's not intuitive either. Like sometimes, you know, you shouldn't do this. Well, I mean, I hope so, but yet you watch kids throw rocks at each other all the time and it seems like you ought to know better, but you don't. Somebody's got to teach you. Life has to happen and you learn, oh, I shouldn't throw rocks at kids. Stuff like that. Um, It's not just a craft or a skill, but it's life. We have to be taught, I think, how to live a good life, what goodness is itself, and then how to live it if we're going to do it ourselves. Some of us are blessed and we learn those lessons from our parents. Some of us have to work harder because maybe in our home we see the opposite. And so we either some, somebody comes into our life to help show us or maybe we seek them out and we find somebody or a family or whatever, people who teach us, hey, this is what goodness is and I'm going to try to live it out for you. I'm going to try to live that with you. So that, you know, I mean, parenting, for example. I still, I don't know how many times I think, well... I don't know what to do. I never thought I'd have to say that to, to a child. Uh, what did my parents do? And did that work? That sort of thing. Or, or there's a few couples that I know who I think are just wonderful parents, far better than me. And I think, what do they do? Um, I, maybe I should ask them. Uh, um, because I don't know what to do. Right? And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a sign of weakness. That's how, that's how we function. Uh, in, in, to go along with what the Greeks did as we kind of try to wrap this up, The good life was this object that they attained for. They would strive towards it. But they also understood it was never fully achieved, at least in life. They always pursued it. So what would happen is, let's say, somebody passed away, 
Then afterwards, it was typically always men because unfortunately they, they weren't as enlightened as we are today. So the other men would get around and they'd gather up and talk about him, the guy who passed away. And they would kind of break down his life and his faults and his strengths. And to collectively they would decide like had he attained the good life or not. Um, and if, let's say, they, they thought he had, then he would become another example to people. Like, that was a good life. And then we would use his life as an illustration uh, that we could teach our children about or that we would strive for. Here's how to attain the good life. Uh, so it was very much, it was a communal thing. It was about what was visible to others. Um, and, it, and so much of it was about example making. They, they believed they had to be taught how to live good lives. They looked to lives to see, was that a good life? If so, that becomes an example for me. And then they would try to live into that same way so that others would look and see, oh, this is, this is good. This is what we should be. This is what John is getting at here with the imitate the good. We don't quite do the same thing today. Sometimes we do. Uh, and for a certain generation, YouTube is that, right? If you don't know how to do something, look it up on YouTube. But if you think about it, YouTube is some guy or some gal saying, here's how I changed the oil in my car. Or here's how I fixed this cross-stitch problem or something like that. And you watch them do it. And then you try it out. And, uh, you know, here you finally figure it out. It's kind of similar. There's, it's not embodied. This is what John is getting at. We have to imitate the good, he says. His points up to now as we wrap up should be clear. God has been fully revealed to us for all time in Jesus, who also happens to be, he's real clear about this, the divine Son of God. So Jesus is Lord. He's the full revelation of God. He's divine. He's Lord. Uh, he says that we should imitate, we've actually heard this several times now, we should imitate God's sacrificial love. It's all about sacrificial love. The sacrificial love that we see poured out, lived out in Jesus. He's the good. We look to Him and we see this is what it's like to live. This is what it's like to die. This is what it's like to be a child of God. I'm called to be this way. He is our good. We look to Him and we try to be like Him. In many ways, that's what we do still today. We get around just like they would talk about the man who passed and did he live the good life. We, we still will read the same passages over and over about Jesus to think, how can we live like that? How can we be like that? And what it does is it creates a chain. You start with eyewitnesses, people like John, who physically saw Jesus and were with Him. And then you immediately begin to move to groups who couldn't. It was impossible for them to see Jesus. So what happens is people like John have to teach and live this sacrificial love. They have to become, they have to imitate Jesus so that then others can begin to imitate them. Paul says it. I mean, it's, it's a, you got to be careful saying this, but he says, imitate me. And he's saying this because of this very reason. I'm trying to imitate Jesus and his direct followers try to imitate me then others will imitate you and others will imitate them and it creates this unbroken chain all the way back to Jesus himself so if you think about it when you came to faith because your great grandma or that sweet guy at the VBS in 1926 or whatever taught you and showed you about Jesus he or she was 
following somebody else who was following somebody else who was following somebody else and you can just go back forever until finally you get to Jesus himself and as scary and as cool as you think others are following you or they will and the chain just continues until we get to meet Jesus ourselves eyewitness disciples disciples of disciples etc we are to imitate those who follow Christ and dare I say it as we do that we invite others to imitate us and to follow us we invite children into faith our own children and others and those others might be 80 and they might be 8 and as we continue to follow others follow us and the chain continues so who is it that you imitate Maybe you've stopped thinking about that, but you do still, or you should. Who is it that you imitate? Who is it that you see around you and you say, they're, they're doing it right. I want to be more like that person. That's okay. We should have that around us. And then who is it around you that looks at you and says, I'm, gonna, I'm learning faith from her. I'm learning faith from him. Who do you imitate? Who imitates you? Let us imitate Christ. And in doing so, Others will begin to imitate us. It's scary, but it's also pretty cool because it takes us all the way back to Jesus. Okay, three takeaways real quick. First, we should receive great joy from seeing our children walking in the truth. And yes, of course, this means our biological children, if we have them. But he's getting at a much bigger thing. We have spiritual children. It has to happen. If we don't have any spiritual children, something's not happening right with faith. It is not just you sitting in a room, you and Jesus with nobody else around. Okay? So your spiritual children, when you see them like getting it right, hopefully even better than you did, you should rejoice in that. That's a great feeling. Number two, uh, we are support, to support those who are, quote, on mission. Missionaries, people out, you know, whatever, however you think of it, in our church, outside of our church, people doing good work. You can give them a dime. You can give them a thousand dollars. You can go and pray with them. You can take time and pray. These are all ways of supporting. You might be able to go and join them at some point. You know, go into a soup kitchen and, and help prepare a meal or serve. In doing so, you become co-workers. If you're stuck at home and you cannot go anywhere and serve with them, you can become a co-worker by giving and by praying, right? We become co-workers, co-laborers in supporting the friends in this way. And then finally, imitation is one of the most fundamental and effective forms of learning. It's how we learn to do crafts and trades, but it's also how we learn life. It's how we learn life, and most importantly, it's how we learn faith. We imitate God's goodness poured out in Jesus, the sacrificial love of God come down in our midst to live and die with and for us, and then we follow others who followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these letters from John, uh, written to a person, to people, a community, written to the church across time, written to Longmont Church of the Nazarene. We're grateful for these uh, few months of going through these letters, and I pray that you'll help us to, to walk away with, with new insight and understanding uh, 
that you'll be that that they'll uh, cause us to uh, to take heart and and lean further into the things that maybe we already knew about you. And Lord, I pray that more than anything else, that we would be people who would follow you, that we would not get distracted, that we wouldn't think that we have to attain something first in order to be your disciple or make somebody happy or do this or do that that we would just know that wherever we are are, as we heard earlier your arms are open to us uh, and you are ready to receive us broken messed up as we are and that as you receive us you place us into the hands of your disciples Um, and sometimes that can be a dangerous scary thing but trusting in your spirit, hopefully it's going to be a good thing. As we see others who learn, who have learned about you and live their lives for you, we have something to model and we have something to follow. And as we are slowly transformed, remind us that we are also to be slowly helping with the transformation of others. We are children. We have children. We are disciples. We make disciples. And in all of that, Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and that we would be your faithful followers right now, right here. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.